curious, how many people here this morning have either had or still have a mother? Raise your hands. Now, I want to know those people didn't raise their hands. Where do you think you came from? You know, today we honor mothers. It's a good thing. But as Christians, we really should honor them every single day, shouldn't we? It's really not a day event, but it's a a year-long every day because that's what God teaches us in his word, that we're to honor each other, but honor our parents and our fathers and mothers. So I want to encourage you just not to do that today, but really do that as a lifestyle issue. Because our role certainly doesn't do it. They have other ideas uh, as to what is important and what's not. You can take God's word, turn to Psalm 119. For those that are visiting with us, we're in a series going down through literally 22 sections of Psalm 119. And in a tradition of the Psalms where they would sing some of these, they would pray some of these. And at different seasons, at different celebrations, sometimes they would just take it. Uh, We began this series looking at a very old hymn. And I told you to take it home and pray it every week. And so we're going to start this morning by just praying that hymn again in the tradition of what Israel would do with the Psalter. So let's pray together. Pray with me. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through his power. May the peace of God, my Father, rule my life in everything that I may be calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. Some very powerful words to pray, aren't they? And I unpacked that the first week, but I encourage you just to take some time and sit down and reflect upon those words. And if you believe that God answers prayer and we pray those things, think about the incredible things that we sang about. You know, your love is amazing. But think about what that will do through and in us in ways that we never thought or dreamed about. Now, Psalm 119, the critical idea I talked about is respect. It's for God. It's his word. And, of course, that translates to his creation. Most of our culture does not understand the correlation of these truths and how they fit together. Therefore, truth becomes enslaved to our opinions. More about that later. As I said before, Psalm 119 is 22 sections, eight verses each. It corresponds with the Hebrew alphabets. So each letter has eight verses tied to it. The number eight in Hebrew is the idea of being fat. It's more than enough. And of course, the concept is that we respect God because he is more than enough. In fact, he's beyond enough. And what we're beginning to see is that God invites us into his story. And that's why the initial question, 
How can a young man keep his ways pure? It's by entering into his story. And that's really what this psalm's about. It's a dialogue about how we do that. So let's move on to our Hebrew alphabet. Anybody remember the first four? <laughs> Aleph, Bet. Remember, you don't pronounce the H. Gamel, Daleth. This week we're in, and the right pronunciation we're not going to do. It's Che, because you might spit on your neighbor. That's not a good thing. So we're just going to go, hey, you know, we can do that. Not he, but hey. And then wa. Okay? So say the alphabet with me again. Aleph, bet, gamel, dalit, hey, and wa. We're doing hey and wa this morning. Now, this next section has this key theme. It's about ending well. I mean, you want to write something down? Write those two words down. The psalmist talks about how do we end well? How do we get through this life? How do we navigate this life? So at the end of our life, we can face God and say, you know what? I ended well. Now, subtitle might be how we navigate our talk and walk. How we navigate our talk and walk. We see these words Paul writes these in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. He's talking about leaving this world. I've fought a good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Paul looks at his life. And even though he didn't start well, he says, I have finished well. I'm ending well. Now, we know not every story in Scripture has people ending well. Take King Saul. He lost his kingship because of his inability to walk the talk. When it took time to make decisions, when it took time to confront situations and circumstances, he bailed on being consistent in terms of what God called him to be and do. Now, this is critical in our understanding this morning. I think about life, and you realize that the current generation, 18 and under, they've never known life without the Internet. I mean, it's just something that's always been there for them. And we know the amount of information and exchange of ideas has accelerated astronomically. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of ideas But what they're discovering through surveys is there's very little walking. They know how to talk. They don't know how to walk. Barnes did a research project in a recent poll. Those under the age of 21, less than 4% have a biblical worldview. A worldview is what we operate out of. In fact, less than 4% that's what, 96% didn't even understand what a biblical worldview was. They do not understand what it means to think critically. Now, when you talk about thinking critically, you're not talking about being critical, okay? People know how to be critical, amen? (laughs) What they don't understand is the process of taking an idea, looking at the consequences, and bringing that idea then into a reality and navigating that decision so it's consistent with what they claim to be over here. I loved an interview that I saw where 
college students, again, not thinking clearly about choices, they gathered all these college students who were pro the government paying for the college. They wanted free college. Now, the person said, well, you understand that when you finish and when you're 35 and 36 and beyond, the tax structure put in place to pay for this, you will have to pay for someone else's. And they go, oh, no, no, that's not fair. They couldn't critically think about, okay, free college, it's really not free. Somebody has to pay for it, which means later on, I'll be the person paying for it. Total disconnect. So the first idea the psalmist brings about finishing well, ending well, is the idea, he says, teach me. Teach me. Look at verses 33 and 34. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. What we talk about here is causation. The psalmist says, listen, cause me to learn. Help me to understand. I want you to be the source of truth. Help me to make sense out of all this. Now, I know today we often think of learning as information. You go to school, you take a test, you get an A, B, C, D, or whatever else they give you today. I don't know. But the psalmist here isn't talking about just the transfer of information. He's saying, do something in me. I want to be all in. So just don't put ideas into my head. Help me move this into my life. Now, life can be crazy. That's both a personal sense and also in a corporate sense. In our culture today, there's three descriptions that sociologists are now claiming we are. They say that we are a culture of outrage, a culture of, a culture of accusation, and a culture of protest. Those are the three predominant characteristics today that we are living out. This past week, I read a story from Texas. A 12-year-old autistic boy was arrested and handcuffed, taken to Juvie Hall, and he sat there for two hours before his parents were notified. Why? Before school started, he was playing with an imaginary gun. He went like this. And the art teacher felt threatened. So she called the police. And he now is unable to return to school, but must attend a disciplinary school for the remainder of the year, which is like two weeks. And I sit to myself and say, this is crazy. And so understand what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, listen, in the midst of this crazy life, he says, teach me. He goes, I need your help. Help me to understand. Help me to make the right choices in the midst of all this chaos. And everything's going down. He says, I need your help to learn. So teach me. Second thing he says, I need you to lead me. Look at verse 35 through 37. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies. And not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. And so what he begins to address is is issues of the heart. He says, okay, I want you to teach me, but I want you to lead me. I just don't want to do what's right. I want to be right. 
And so in this passage, he says, listen, save me from selfish gain. Save me from worthless things. Give me life. Cause in me a desire what is good. Teach me to hate what is evil and to love what is good. I mean, all those are mixed up in what he is saying there. Now, one of the things that we've been taught well in our culture is what we call autonomy. It's individualism. Self is at the center of everything we do. That's why opinions are equal to truth. My opinion is my truth, therefore it is true. Perspectives, my perspective is reality. Therefore, what I see is real. This pervasive individualist spirit started back early 1900s. It's just not something new. It's part of what they call modern culture. That's why we live in a postmodern culture because people are deconstructing self. That's a long philosophy lesson I won't get into this morning. But the truth is, it is all about me. We live in a, and you've heard me say this before, please don't confuse me with the facts world. And that's why you hear me constantly say something. And you know it by heart now. So finish this for me. We come to worship too. Do you realize how radical that is in our culture? Do you understand to worship someone else other than ourselves to most people? That's just plain down weird. But then the psalmist brings back a key thought. He says, teach me, lead me. And the key thought is about respect. He uses the word fear here. Fearing. Verse 38 and 39. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Remember the book of Proverbs? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now think about some of the songs we sang this morning. Because here's what the psalmist is saying. When God is huge, when God is majestic, when he is mighty, when we worship him and him alone, and we respect him, think about what that does. Think about how that kind of power and how that kind of transformation not only changes our life, but think about how it impacts the community. And there's something else we get. When we fear the Lord, when we realize how majestic, how powerful, how mighty, when we worship him, something else we get is confidence. Now, it's different than pride because it's confidence in what he can do. It's respect and confident in what God will do and is doing. And of course, there's hope in the future about what he's going to do. Now, for people, and sad to say, even in the church, many people don't understand this. I know for myself, when I start talking to people about what God is doing, whether GBC or in our world, I get pretty wound up, and I just get going on that. And there's times when other people look at me and they kind of say, well, aren't you into yourself? Or they ask some irrelevant question like, oh, so your church must be really big. 
I'm like, no, what's that have to do with it? We got a big God. And what they confuse is, I mean, I love talking about what God's doing. Amen? Amen. And when I see it, I want to share it. And over the years, what I've learned is to have incredible confidence in what God will do. When we allow him to be our God, when we respect him, when we fear him the way we should. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect or we don't have failures. Doesn't mean that we don't talk about those things. But look at Paul, and Paul learned this lesson. In Philippians chapter 4, and again, this passage is fairly known to many people here. If it's not, it's a really kind of cool passage. Paul writes these words. Remember where he was? He was in prison, okay? Not the best circumstances. And here's what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's kind of an odd thing to say out of prison, isn't it? But he has this great confidence in God. And when you read the scriptures, it's cool because Paul says, listen, I'm here because God put me here. I got guards that have to stand there and watch me. And I can just talk about anything I want. I'm here to be a witness and testimony to what God can and will do to these guards. They think I'm a prisoner. No, they're a prisoner. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. says, do not be anxious about anything. Ever get anxious about something? (laughs) Why do we get anxious? It's because we're not fearing and respecting God. We're looking at circumstances And we let the circumstances control us and not our great God. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. You know, I love it when people say, well, tell me about God's peace. Well, we can't describe it. Can we? It's just something we have confidence in saying, you know, it's really kind of cool. And... That's going to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now look at the next passage. Finally, brothers, he's talking about a choice we make here. Paul could focus on his circumstances. He could focus on the people that want him dead. He could focus on other Christians at that point who are condemning him for being in prison. You can read about that in some of the letters. He could focus on so many different things, but here's what he says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Put it up here. Teach me. Lead me. Help me to honor, to fear, to respect what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Walking the talk. See what that says? You've learned. You've taken it in. The information. You've heard it. But also you watched me walk this way. Practice these things. Anybody into sports knows what practice means. And you know if you want to play the game, you got to do what? Show up at practice. You want God to use you? You want to be involved in building the kingdom? You need to practice. And what do you practice? Well, you practice these things. Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. And the God of peace will be with you. 
Here's what the psalmist is saying. I need to live beyond myself. Anybody there? <laughs> he looks at his life and says, you know what? My power is not enough. What I can do is not enough. There has to be something more. There has to be someone out there that can do things through me that I cannot do on a human level. And then he moves on to talk about desires. So he says, teach me, lead me. Talks about fearing and honoring. And then he talks about desires. Verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. I desire for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Every thou shalt and thou shalt not. Every command, every positive thing he tells us to do is an invitation to walk in the world as he designed it. It's an invitation to be alive. But here's what we do. That's nothing new. It's Genesis 3. Well, did God really say? Now, one of the more obvious ones, and I've heard this over the last 40 years, is the laws around sex and sexuality. You know, God says reserve it for marriage. And I have so many people say, well, you know, I I don't know if that's what he really meant. And if it's so much fun, why restrict it? And why can't we take marriage on a test run before marriage? You know, they've done studies that people who choose to live together before marriage end up having a higher rate of divorce than those that wait. See, our logic, our critical thinking doesn't relate well. Take the world of pornography, and again, you can argue definitions about what is and what isn't. And those that argue definitions, I think, are just caught up in some games of their own mind. There was a couple in one of my churches, and I remember she came to me and says, listen, my husband's into sports, and Sports Illustrated comes along, and there's the swimsuit model. And he sees nothing wrong with it. And the husband says, you know, it's no big deal. And he says things like this, well, you know, I only have eyes for my wife. And the wife says, listen, dear, you need to understand those swimsuit models, they stay the same age. I keep getting older. <laughs> and I really don't want you to look at other women in those little bathing suits. I looked at him and said, do you want to honor your wife? Do you want to honor the mother of your kids? Then you're just going to stop because she wants you to stop. And so he did. Only after being away from that for a while, he confessed to me one time it wasn't a good thing to put before his eyes. Until he walked away from it, he couldn't see the damage that was doing to his own soul. And that's why the psalmist said, turn my eyes from worthless things. Now finally the psalmist says, okay, you need to walk the talk. Teach me, lead me. Yes, I need to respect you. You need to work my desires, but help me to walk the talk. Now, remember the confidence I talked about? You hear this boldness. You hear this confidence. And it's not the psalmist being arrogant. He's simply saying, listen, you know, now this is starting to work down through my life. Well, let me just read it to you. Listen to it. He says in verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. 
for I trust in your word. So he's saying, listen, I'm going to have this boldness, this confidence that when I'm confronted in a situation where people are taunting, I'm going to have something good to say. Verse 43, take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. So you get this idea that, you know what? He is going to kind of strut down the street because he's a child of God and say, look at my incredible God. I'm going to share what he's doing. I'm going to talk about what he's doing. And I'm not going to fear the consequences that even a king may do to me. I have to think about brothers and sisters around the world that live in countries where that kind of boldness means they might die. Just yesterday, because yesterday was today in Indonesia, um, three Christian churches were bombed and many people killed just because they were Christian. A husband and wife, Muslim, decided to ride motorcycles into between these three existing Christian buildings and blow them up on a Sunday morning while they were worshiping to an audience of one. See, this is what the Psalms is saying. Listen, I'm going to have this confidence that whatever happens, happens. But boy, I am going to talk about the mighty works of God because I am stoked on what he is doing. That's a, just one amen. Can I get another one? He says in verse 47, for I find my delights in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Let me talk about patterns for a moment, because this is a pattern we're going to keep seeing over and over again. But you think about patterns in our culture. You know, I love our culture that always talks about hypocritical Christians. But think about, again, the lack of critical thinking and think about the hypocrisy in our culture. Let me point out some. And by me pointing out, I'm not critical of the organization. I'm just critical of how they're handling things. Most of you heard about the hashtag Me Too movement, about the denigration and sexual denigration of women. Very appropriate. But it bothers me when they make fun of Vice President Mike Pence because he invokes the Billy Graham rule. You know what the Billy Graham rule is? Billy Graham says, I will not meet another woman without somebody else there with me, alone. And this organization just mocked and made fun of him as being archaic and traditional. I'm thinking, wait a minute. You want to honor women by your movement, but you are denigrating someone who says, I want to honor my wife this way. A study came out this past week. This was fascinating. Again, I'm not going to talk about the ins and outs of climate change, but around this debate, they studied people who were pro-climate change and people that were against climate change. And you know what they found out? They discovered that the people who were pro-climate change had a lifestyle that was anti-climate change. (laughs) And they found that the people that were against climate change actually had a lifestyle that was more pro-climate change and taking care of this world than those that are pro-climate change. I'm thinking, isn't that absolutely crazy? (laughs) And God will help you navigate this one, okay? That's what this is about. 
And I sit there and say, you know, okay, I get it. Because opinions are truth, blah, blah, blah. They don't walk the talk. But they accuse everybody else of not being wise. Take it's all about the kids. I love that. You see in education, you see in other kinds of things. Oh, we're doing this for our kids. And many of the people that are pushing that are pro-choice when it comes to abortion. And that just confuses me. So here's the pattern, okay? I'm going to state it two ways. The pattern the psalmist talks about is God speaking to us, us speaking to God, and us speaking to others. Okay? You want to end well, that's the pattern. Now let me kind of state this in another way because it's beyond words. It's about God's life speaking to us. It's about our lives speaking to God and our lives speaking to others. That's what walk the talk means. That's what it means to take a belief and move it into our lives. And again, I hope you hear this morning, all of us are imperfect at that, including myself. But we are on a journey that says, listen, we're going to take God seriously. We're going to take his word seriously. We're going to try to figure out how to navigate those things that he wants us to navigate in the current culture that we presently live. So we're not going to speak against the culture. We're going to show the culture what hope and life looks like. And if we're going to walk the talk, we've got to have respect for God. And that's beyond words and it's beyond ideas. It's beyond a Sunday morning. It has to move it from our heads into our hearts. And we've got to allow God by his spirit to change our desires. We've got to allow God through his spirit to lead us, to teach us. Our lives need to be visible displays of his son. That is why he calls us the body of Christ. We are the visible representation of his desires to this world. I mean, isn't that incredible? I always love it when people say in church, well, I don't have anything to do. What do you mean you don't have anything to do? You are the visible representation of Jesus to the world wherever you go. I mean, talk about an incredible, awesome challenge. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes these words. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. How many times do you hear me say we're not defined by our circumstances? Our circumstances do not define us. Our culture does not define us. Rather, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And again, he's talking about physical death, which we all die. But he's really talking about life itself. You want to you live? Follow the Spirit. You want to die in this world? You want your soul to shrivel up? Then just follow your own flesh. Follow what everybody else is saying. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you understand the words I just read? If you're in Christ, everybody here then is either a son or daughter of God. And if you're a son and daughter of God, guess what? You get the inheritance of God. I know some of you get all excited about physical inheritance down here and you wonder what you're going to get. This is way beyond anything you could ever imagine or dream of. Amen? And that should drive us. And so our past doesn't define us. Our circumstances do not define us. Our emotions do not define us. What defines us is God. We are sons and daughters. We are children of the most awesome, living, mighty God that we sang about. Only one woo. (laughs) It's time we start living like it, okay? Amen. I want a louder email now. It's time we start living like we are sons and daughters. Amen. Okay. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And we're going to give you a chance to sing like your sons and daughters of this incredible, awesome, mighty God. Let's stand together as we worship.